This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Sherry Kajiwara, director curator of the Nikkei National Museum at the Nikkei Center in Burnaby. She recently edited The Tree Trunk Can Be My Pillow, the biography of an outstanding Canadian about Eikichi Kagetsu, published by the University of Victoria Press in 2017. Sherry, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Today you're going to be talking about the history of Japanese Canadians, which I understand dates back to the Meiji period, and particularly the year 1877. Can you give us a quick overview of that history of Japanese immigration to Canada? So the official record, the community record, what you'll see on Wikipedia and in history books, states that Manzo Nagano arrived in 1877. There is some debate about that. and But in 1977, there was a celebratory year for the Japanese-Canadian community, and they marked it as the 100th anniversary of Japanese immigration to Canada, hinging that number around what they could find about Manzo Nagano. So, yes, 1877. There is definitely evidence of Japanese uh, fishermen or travelers coming. When I say travelers, everything was by ship. So people traveling here by ship far before that. And if we were to get into older history, I'm sure there, there would be other stories. There are probably oral histories. And an area that my museum is interested in investigating at some future date are the intersections between the Japanese migration and the First Nations, the indigenous people here, because we are convinced that there there is evidence of the intersection of the two communities and that predates that. However, yes, the official um, immigration timeline begins at 1877 with Manzo Nagano splashing down literally in New Westminster, which was then the downtown of Vancouver. So around that time, you know, it was a time in Japan when life wasn't so great for individuals who were not necessarily the eldest son. And But this could be said about much of the globe in terms of the pioneering spirit that was happening around that time, but in particular from Japan, Canada was seen as a land of opportunity, or more correctly, and even until recently, I think a lot of Japanese consider this sometimes America. And they're not wrong, it's called the Americas, I guess, in North America, but they, the attraction, the, the promise of riches of opportunity, I'm sure, was a big draw, as it was for many of the immigrants who came. So what do we know about Manzo Nagano before he came to Canada and then afterwards? He tried his hand in a few different enterprises. Uh, fishing was definitely one of them. But the settling in Canada actually happened in Victoria, where he had a boarding house as well as a retail shop. He became quite established in Victoria, actually, in the um, late 1800s, early 1900s. He did end up returning to Japan and dying there. But in his um, memory, or to commemorate his legacy, there is a mountain in BC named after him. So he was just a young man who came looking for opportunity. Uh, Fishing was a logical area to be involved in. That just was often the reason that individuals came over, men came over initially, but then very soon found his way into the urban structure of Victoria. 
And I understand many of the Japanese immigrants came from the same area in Mie Prefecture. Mie Prefecture was a huge draw, and there's seminal work done by Dr. Audrey Kobayashi, uh, presently of Queens, for her original PhD work. She did incredible study of the movement of Japanese from primarily Shigaken, in specifically, mm. to the west coast of Canada. And it's interesting to note that that's not the only area of migration, but that was one of definitely one of the largest. And one of the largest where there was movement, she was able to track the movement not only to Canada, but through the mm. war years, through internment, and actually even some uh, movement back. Mm. There's an interesting tidbit, a, a little fact about her research. Mio apparently produced the largest number of uh, baseball players who became the famous Vancouver Asahi. Many, many, many members of that team originated from Mio. And you mentioned that uh, Manzo Nagano initially landed in New Westminster and then later went to Victoria. I understand many, many immigrants came to Steveston and there was a large community down there. Yes, and the, actually from New Westminster, obviously the logical um, first stop would be Steveston, uh, just at the mouth of the Fraser River, and again, for the fishing industry. Mm, but there were definitely other industries that attracted immigrants, um, logging, timber, um, there was definitely a strong mining industry happening here. Resource-rich, definitely. Mm -hmm. And so at its peak, do we have any numbers uh, or figures of how large the Japanese Canadian population was prior well, to 1942? So 1901 is the first year that the Japanese government documented um, Japanese population in BC. And at that time, the Canadian um, population was 5 million. There were 178,657 residents in BC, of which 4,738 were Japanese. It increased 190% by 1911 another 176% by 1921, 147% by 1931, and then you see a drastic decrease. There was still an increase. Now we're talking population increase, so there's, that's not just migration, but um, in 1941 that dropped to 99%. So in 1941, Canada had a population of 11.5, and BC residents were just upwards of 800,000, and there were 23,149 Japanese documented in Canada, just to give you the range of stats. Um, it's interesting also to compare that to the American migration, because Japanese were in the United States much longer, and their numbers were much larger, but proportionately the uh, per capita uh, residency in BC, when you take it out of the total population of Japanese migration to Canada, was arguably much, much higher percentage-wise. You mentioned that at first many of the immigrants who came to Canada were male, presumably yes. looking for work. Then do, do their families come later? Do they start families? Or what's so, the family life here? Good question. BC was extremely racist at the time, and there were a lot of restrictions on Asian migration in general. So for the South Asian population and the Chinese population in particular, there were already serious immigration restrictions, which were basically just as a blanket policy uh, applied to the Japanese. But if you remember in the 
late 1800s, early 1900s. And in fact, the first Japanese consul general, consulate in Vancouver opened in 1889. So not long after, you know, we have Manzo Nagano arriving. And at that time, Japan was allied with England, with Britain. And the UK, of course, was um, the governing body of Canada. So everyone in Canada was considered a British subject. So because of that alliance uh, there, and because of the presence of a consulate in Vancouver, and interesting that comment about Victoria, you would think the consulate would have been in Victoria at the time. And they originally were going to. There is actually documentation in the Japanese government records that Victoria was originally identified and then crossed out and renoted by hand Vancouver. Hmm. And that was, again, part of the um, consular research that was done in 2013-2014. And interestingly enough, because of that presence and because of the Japanese government in Canada and because of the friendship between Japan and England, there were some protections for the Japanese migrants. And in particular, uh, a very powerful protective move was there was the Chinese head tax that was levied on Chinese male immigrants who were basically indentured labor brought to Canada to work on the railway and infrastructure of the country. And at one point, that was almost $500 per head. And we're talking, when you think about the time, that was definitely um, onerous. They, the BC government wanted to apply the, make it an Asian head tax and apply it to the Japanese population. But the consul at the time, uh, in defense of his people and also in uh, recognition of this alliance, uh, really lobbied with uh, the powers that be to not have that happen, and he was successful. So the migration for Japanese was a, a little bit more fluid, and again, initially it was men, because they were coming in search of opportunity and jobs and things like that. But in uh, 1907, there were the Asian... Again, the anti-Asian sentiments did not stop in the late 1800s and really escalated. And in 1907, there are the famous anti-Asian race riots that happen in Vancouver. In 1908, uh, largely in response to that, there are further negotiations between the Japanese and the British government. And there was a gentleman's agreement struck in the United States. And similarly, there is the Hayashi Lemieux gentleman's agreement that was negotiated for Vancouver. And with that, they the immigration from Japan to Canada was capped at 400, but included women and children, included families, which the other Asian migration policies did not. Mm -hmm. So that ushered in uh, an era of the picture bride. And between 1908 and 1928, I believe, if I, sorry, I'm not, I don't have my speaking notes for this afternoon at my ready, but, um, I believe that's correct because in 28 the numbers were reduced because of again rising racism and the threat, the imminent threat of war 
Uh, and again, with the Second World War, of course, Japan was on the other side and not allied. So uh, with that, the immigration numbers were reduced further to 150. And something else happened. In 1931, so a few years later, uh, there was an order in council that um, precluded naturalization status if you retained a previous country's citizenship and Japan did not have a you could not renounce your citizenship actually at that time so it basically made it impossible for naturalized Japanese immigrants to get Canadian uh, papers so there's a lot of interesting politics involved with obviously economical uh, pressures and this just environment of, of racism that existed then. seven riots. Can you give us a, a bit more detail on the background of those and then also the ramifications? The original background was, again, uh, interestingly enough, how influenced we are by our American cousins. It was actually in, instigated by race riots that happened uh, south of the border. And it was really a white supremacist, for lack of a better word, uh, attempt to erase the Asian peril. And it was about jobs. It was economic. It was um, thought and felt at the time, just according to all the evidence that I've been able to see, that um, Asians were hardworking, harder working, uh, willing to work for less pay, and were very successful. You know, the Japanese in Canada, right from the beginning, they were entrepreneurial, they were pioneering, they were ambitious, and I'm over, I'm generalizing, but that, that was very true across the community in all the different industries and all the different walks of life. And uh, there was definitely anger and uh, possessiveness and a feeling of, um, we need you out. So what started as a labor riot, actually, a movement, a, a very misguided movement that felt that if there was this uh, physical act of activism, uh, that the powers that be or the, the government of the day would uh, eject the, the threat, the menace. So that's how it started. But it started as a, a labor riot, and basically the buzzword was to create a white Canada at the steps of the then City Hall in Vancouver. And it traveled to Chinatown first and that's where the famous photos of the broken glass and the and the uh, damage and the violence that have been recorded in fact UBC has an excellent collection of those heritage photographs uh, the the worst damage was in Chinatown and then from there they were making their way up to Powell Street Paurugai or Powell Grounds which euphemistically is called Japantown but was never named that at the time 
And so our community had more warning, but they were also more organized to protect themselves. So it was really quite quickly diffused, and there was relatively little damage to the the Japanese um, downtown center at the time. You mentioned the photographs uh, that we have here at, at UBC in the Japanese Canadian Photograph Collection, including I think we have twenty three exactly of. Uh, photographs that were damaged of uh, Japanese-owned buildings. Um, and so this one I've always found very striking. I, I've seen it. It seems to be... It's a, it's a very famous photograph. It is a very famous photograph. Uh, I, I saw it at the Vancouver Maritime Museum. We, we used it in, in your poster. <laughs> Two things I always found very striking about the photograph is the woman in the door seems to be smiling, which was... And holding kinda, a child. And holding a child, which was funny. But then on the far right... There is a man wearing a turban. That's right. And so you mentioned that there was this strong tie between the Japanese community in the Lower Mainland and also the South Asian community. Yes. And obviously it dates back very early. What do we know about those relationships? Well, it's not a well uh, investigated relationship, but we do know they existed particularly in the lumber industry, in the logging industry. And the South Asians were actually quite successful, um, the Royston logging camp on the island, for example. And they would have been um, potential employers who would hire Japanese workers. There were also Conversely, there were very established, uh, by the time World War II happened, very established logging camps owned by Japanese and Japanese Canadians who conversely would hire others, shall we say, because, and again, it was partly out of necessity, partly out of uh, trying to trying to find some success in a country that didn't want you. The... South Asian population, as you know, there's the tragedy of the Komagatamaru. Mm. Oh, and if you don't, you must look that up because there it, it's very heavily uh, researched. There were there were some celebrations uh, in recent years, and there's a fantastic website, Komagatamaru. It's the name of the ship mm. that traveled here. That was actually uh, they were seeking safe harbor. They were basically refugees and trying to escape tyranny, and they were refused and sent back, and many of them did end up being killed. Um, the, the, uh, the, I'm actually, you know, what I haven't done is found out exactly where this is. According to the description that we have, it's 130 Powell Street. Oh, thank you. Well, then that is Powell Grounds, and that is the, uh, the main Powell Street was, of course, the main retail corridor. And that's the other thing. The, uh, the reason that area, euphemistically known as Japantown, was ever even created was really in response to the racist environment. And that's also uh, why Chinatown existed. You know, it was areas, from one point of view, they could be uh, criticized as ghettoizing the communities. But on the other side, they were safe havens where the um, constituents could speak their own language. They could have enjoy their own foods they could share their cultures and there was a fairly free flow between all of the asian um, populations at that time and because uh powell street would have been more family oriented more it was very much thriving and it was definitely um a very prospering part of the city although it was considered the first stop 
for migrants, immigrants from Japan. And once you established yourself, you actually moved out. You moved further afield. And by 1942, there were very established enclaves in uh, Marpole, in Fairview, in like all around what we would now call Olympic Village, Granville Island, um, right up into the Broadway Canby Main Street area. There was a large population in Kitsilano and a very affluent population in Shaughnessy and even into North and West Vancouver. Um, this, we're just talking the spread from immediate Vancouver, notwithstanding that there were definitely farms in the valley and, you know, if we move further out. Um, but the entire community, regardless of how far they were spread out from the downtown core, would come into town and that would be the downtown area. So it would also have been popular for any other communities who were perhaps restricted or barred from uh, Canadian, Caucasian um, and, and I imagine places. with all the kind of structural racism that you were talking about earlier, it's not too easy for people to, to move out of Japantown, right? I mean, other kinds of redlining policies or, or landlords who are, are reluctant to lend to non-white people. For In the early days, but as I was explaining, the Japanese came and prospered. They mm -hmm. were the landlords. They were the... There's a really interesting uh, longhouse uh, that was built by a Japanese immigrant, and it's part of a new Fairview Mountain, uh, Mount Pleasant, walking tour that we are developing and it exists today it was so well built and mm. the original gentleman who built it was a shipbuilder you know talk about the fishing influence and right. all of that and it is still uh there today and it is now a an apartment it's a multi-purpose uh multi-resident living building that we are we have identified and actually heritage bc is interested in uh perhaps designating it as a, a significant um, stop in Vancouver. Mm. That, sorry, that's not to confuse with the heritage uh, signif sites of significance, which is something else entirely. But there is a local uh, heritage recognition of uh, local... Th there's walk the city of Vancouver, there's walking tours and things like that. So this is our own museum map, but we have discovered that this tenement house, this longhouse, uh, was built then for Japanese workers and um, families and is still standing today. Out of my own curiosity, I, I, you know, this, this figure, the, the South Asian man in this photograph, it always makes me wonder, because now we think of most of the South Asian community in Vancouver lives in Surrey. So at this time, would, would Japantown, Chinatown, have, would there have been a, a South Asia town in the same area? That I don't know about, but I do know that the mills were there, right in, in the harbor. The, uh, right along Alexander Street, Hastings Mill was the largest employer of all immigrant workers. So it, they were uh, most likely in the neighborhood for work and then probably on Powell Street for lunch or, you know, groceries or things like that. And of course, that is the famous race, anti-Asian race riot day. So uh, there was um, probably many Asians who were trying to help defend each other and I would hope.
mentioned that the community would often come together in places like Powell Street. And so were there community events? Now we have the Powell Street Matsuri. Right. And how far back does that date? Well, the Powell Street Festival actually started, uh, I believe it started in 1977. It was, it was only, it was the return, mm-hmm. right? It was really the... It did not exist as as we know it now, but what did exist was the Vancouver Asahi baseball team in Oppenheimer Park. And Oppenheimer Park is the ground where Powell Street Festival happens annually. And it really, Powell Street Festival, the modern Powell Street Festival, uh, is really a reclaiming of that neighborhood, even if only for 48 hours. And there is a... Um, commemorative baseball game that gets played right in that park a, a week or two later. But the, it was an active baseball field, and it was the, the team was very successful, and they were really a bridge uh, over racism, and in fact became so popular with the mainstream Canadian audience that uh, you know, they would fill the stands. And it, so it wasn't a festival per se, but there were regular gatherings of community. And um, it was interesting that the sport of baseball even continued on into the internment camps as a friendship. Uh, 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 I shouldn't say friendship. It's It was really what broke down barriers. Baseball helped break down barriers. It crossed over racism and feelings of alienation and really uh, helped bring people together then and I believe continues to now. Can you tell us more about the baseball team? Were they in the local like minor leagues or anything they like that? They were. So, and their history is is long. Like it starts in the 20s and <laughs> there's a, a fantastic series of books written by Mrs. Pat Adachi and um, there are some movies that have been made. There's actually a really famous a contemporary Japanese movie that was made with a couple of pop stars a few years ago uh, on the Vancouver Asahi that um, give a more fictionalized, um, Hollywoodized, I guess, version of the story. But uh, in the early days, the early uh, time period, the Japanese players were not able to compete uh, very well with their Canadian um, counterparts because they were so much physically smaller mm. and it was just brute force and strength that the Canadian Caucasian teams were able to uh, overpower the Canadian Japanese team but um, there is a pivotal moment and I, I'm sorry I don't have the exact date at my fingertips but if you check Sleeping Tigers or any of Pat's um, books on the Asahi. There's also actually a recent book that was penned in Japan by um, an author with the last name of Goto uh, about the Asahi. It's written in Japanese and it has recently, interestingly enough, been translated into English. And we have both versions in our museum shop that um, gives a really interesting overview and he talks about this moment. But actually, I highly recommend that book to your listeners and, and the students of the Japanese history here because it also gives the overview. It, it puts this baseball team within the context of Japanese migration and the early history. But there was this pivotal moment where bunting, because the Japanese players were fast, they were small, but they were smart and they were fast, and they were smart, which was why it was called 
brain ball. It was actually publicized in the newspapers of the day as the team wins again with brain ball. And that actually was the pivotal moment that changed the game for everyone. And it really, uh, it brought them into the equivalent of the major leagues. They are now, the Vancouver Asahi, the historical Vancouver Asahi, are now in the um, Canadian Sports Hall of Fame, the National Sports oh. Hall of Fame, and the local BC Sports Hall of Fame. So it's quite a, a wonderful story. Growing up in the United States, especially on the West Coast, I learned a lot about the Japanese-American internment. But since I've moved up to British Columbia, I, I'm hearing more about this, and I, I've started to notice a, a lot of cases where the Canadian case was actually much longer and m actually much different than It was much harsher. American. It was much harsher. The um, significant difference is Japanese immigration into the United States had been happening for a lot longer, mm -hmm. so the population was much more established, and the United States had a constitution. There were civil rights in place for the, the people of the nation. In Canada, even though um, numerically we were smaller, but the entire population of Canada was smaller. You could take off a zero, you know, everywhere. And, um, but the, again, I was, I was saying at the opening of this talk that we had a much larger proportion of immigration here. It was much harsher because um, we did not have the protection of a constitution. There was, um, it, it almost feels like the, the racist policies, the, the economic threat was somehow amplified in Canada, magnified, um, out of proportion. So when Pearl Harbor happened, which was the defining moment for uh, all of our, our shared histories, the um, war really gave the excuse, gave the opportunity, gave the reason to once and for all eradicate Canada of the they couldn't eradicate the entire Asian menace, but they could try to eradicate the Japanese. It was the equivalent of ethnic cleansing up here. So the uh, there were there were orders in council. Uh, I'll talk about it more this afternoon. But there were. Let me see if I can just give you a quick um, rundown of the the sequence of events that happened in. Um, early 1942. So, of course, Pearl Harbor happens in December 1941, December 7th to be exact. January 8-9 of 1942, there's a conference in Ottawa called The Japanese Problem, where they're deciding what to do. And in uh, January 14, so very shortly after that, there is a declaration of Japanese males as enemy aliens. But quite frankly, the way the government behaved from that point on, they were treating the entire population of, as enemy aliens, regardless of where you were born. And um, it was all under the auspices of the War Measures Act. And we were at war. The country was at war. So that's um, then in February 19, the Order and Council PC 1486 defines a 100-mile exclusion zone all along the coast of BC. And this is what enables the forced uprooting, the forced dispersal of over 22,000 people of Japanese ancestry in Canada mm -hmm. from the West Coast. 
And then how long did that last? So the war ends in 1945. In the United States, American Japanese are allowed back home. Right. In Canada, there is a loyalty survey that, or the threat actually of a loyalty survey, because interestingly enough, the Americans had a loyalty survey that was given very early on. Mm. And uh, our loyalty survey was circulated throughout all the internment camps and to all the areas where the Japanese Canadians and Japanese were being detained. And basically, it wasn't a survey. It was the threat of one, because it said that you, although the war is over, oh, these are not, don't quote, these are not the exact words, yeah. but in essence, what it said was the, uh, the war is over, however, to show, if you are loyal to Canada, you will move further east of the Rockies. This is 1946. 46. If you choose to not do that, then you are deemed disloyal, and you will be sent to Japan. Actually, they said you will return home to Japan. Ironically, of the 4,000 who were deported, 2,000 were born in Canada. So how do you return to somewhere you've never been? And life was really hard for those who did uh, take that option. M many took it under duress. The government really sugarcoated it, though. They paid their way. They made it fully financially lucrative, or not lucrative, but attractive. And if you were loyal and you chose to go east, you were on your own. You had no support. So that was the uh, the main difference. But furthermore, the Canadian government was able to continue the essence of the War Measures Act. They it, The War Measures Act was... Um, ineffectual after the war ended, but there was other policies in place that kept it going that had to be renewed annually, mm. and the local government, the Canadian government did renew it annually until 1948. Mm. And in uh, they, 1948-1949, Canada was trying to uh, join the United Nations on a... Um, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting. The, there was, a, there was a, a, a global initiative at the time which really involved peacemaking. Mm. And they could not, in uh, good conscience, be a part of that while they were detaining their own citizens or treating their own citizens as enemy aliens. Because according to the Geneva Convention, anyone born in your country cannot be labeled mm. an enemy alien. And you cannot intern them. You can only intern enemy aliens. Right. So that's why I'm saying the government, although they didn't officially label them other than this one notice about Japanese men, they just certainly treated the population, women and children, everyone, because they did intern them regardless of where they were born mm. and deported them regardless of where they were born. So the Japanese uh, population in Canada was not allowed to return to the West Coast until 1949, which is also the same year that they were finally given the franchise, the right to vote. Mm -hmm. And that is definitely four years longer right. than in the United States. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. 
Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.